And so for that scene in the kitchen, I remember we were all kind of sitting around and I think it was Ethan. Um, he, he made a statement. He said, what's interesting about this scene is everyone thinks that this is their kitchen. <laughs> and, and I love that yeah. because there's always these machinations and, and people are kind of afraid to speak up and be blunt. Everyone's got a secret in that scene. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a family vacation becomes an apocalyptic nightmare in director Sam Esmail's psychological thriller, Leave the World Behind. The film tells the story of Amanda and Clay, who rent a luxurious home for the weekend with their kids. Their getaway is upended when two strangers arrive bearing news of a mysterious cyber attack and the possible collapse of life as we know it. In addition to Leave the World Behind, Esmail's other directorial credits include the feature film Comet and episodes of the series Homecoming and Mr. Robot. Following a screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Esmail spoke with director Luke Greenfield about filming Leave the World Behind. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Hello. Wow. Huh? It's my second time seeing it. Isn't it nice to see something original? Yeah? Yeah? Same smell. All right, so I'm going to jump right in. Okay. Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. Um, I've known Sam a, a long time, and I say to you all the time, I'm going to say it again, is that what I love about your work, movies, TV series, everything, is that there's such a sense of control, right? Precision. Like, I just feel like I'm in the hands of a master. It's so thought out. It's so prepared. And so even in a movie like this where you're like, where's this going? What's happening? There's this confidence that I can just be on the ride with you and not be thinking sometimes like we all do of like, this, this film maker's going to it up. I know it. I'm going to be so pissed later. And so my first question as filmmakers is you're a writer director. Clearly it's so planned out to every detail, every nuance. How do you get what you want that you've been in your head for months, years? How do you get it? And I'll go through different different parts of that question. Oh, wow. That is, that's wow. Okay. Um, I, you know, honestly, I think for me, it always starts with the characters and the, and the actors. And so one of the things that I like to do is, um, first I like to shoot on, on the soundstage cause that's, I mean, of course there, you're, there you go. You get a lot of control there. Right. <laughs> so, um, that's part of the reason why I, do, I always hate shooting on locations because you're, you're going to, and they invariably have to compromise. Now on this film, you know, we found a beautiful location, that house. And the first thing I said after we found the location is tell my production designer to build it. Yeah. So we yeah. built it. Yeah. Um, um, but then I get the cast there and you know, when you have like amazing, um, talent like this, you 
go through all the scenes and you rehearse and you find the emotional truth in every moment and every line and you block, you let them kind of go and you bring, you know, I bring Todd, my DP there. I bring my production designer there because everything's going to kind of uh, arrange around that. And then we go away and Todd and I, we meticulously shot list everything. Um, um, and we, we don't spare a moment, meaning if there's a shift in a scene, an emotional change, uh, now character has taken the power over from another character. We always want the camera to always be communicating that. Um, so I think we like, you know, I'm not as good as like Spielberg, right? You know, Spielberg famously will walk onto a set, no plan, no (laughs) shot list, no storyboard and just figure it totally. out. I can't do that. I, <laughs> I have to do a ton of homework. Right. And then right. even then I'm praying that things don't go <laughs> bad, but that's, yeah, that's the only way I know how to do it. Well, some questions on that though. So do, but do you storyboard? Do you previs? Like what's going yeah, on? Oh yeah. Okay. I do everything. I'll, I want the movie to be as planned out as possible. So I'll use whatever tool I can. And previs is great you know, it's good and bad, right? Cause you're, 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 you know, you're watching this bad animatronic and you're like, Oh God, is this what the movie's going to look like? Maybe (laughs) I shouldn't do this. But at the same time, what's great about it is it gives you all the detail of, cause you know, we do some crazy shots that kind of give my camera operators headaches, right? I can't imagine. Yeah. They're like, I I don't know how we're going to I'm like, I don't know. Don't look at me. I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about cranes. Um, um, but the pre, but then you pre visit and then the pre just spits out. Yeah. Here's what you, you need this arm and you need, and then, you know, that, that really gets everyone in sync because the worst thing like on Mr. Robot or homecoming when we couldn't really afford pre um, you know, I'm sitting there describe, okay, the camera's here and then we're going over here and they don't know what the <laughs> I'm talking about. And so we're just more like, you know, spitballing, but I, I, you know, as many tools that can get us precisely to where we're trying to get to and to get everyone on the same page. I mean, that's like the other thing, you know, when moving a a camera on a crane like that involves so many people, it's not just a camera operator. And then you got to light the thing, you know, and make sure shadows don't go on there. So there's a lot that goes into it. And so as much as you can get everyone on the same page, the better. I mean, that's, that's the only way to achieve any sort of like precision with something as chaotic as what we're doing. And and it's incredible. So I have questions on that though. So you say, you know, you're, you're getting on set with the actors, you're blocking it. But for example, a lot of these scenes though, you already know, it seems like exactly how you're going to shoot, how, you know, where this camera's moving, why it's moving, all these very complicated shots. So my question is when you're blocking it with them, I, I guess all I'm asking this is that when are you, when are you explaining to the actors, if you are, this is how, this is where the camera's going to be, this is how I'm shooting it, or is it on set, is it in rehearsal? No, do, I, do not tell it, them. <laughs> it really, it really starts with them. And I see that now, look, when I, you know, obviously when we're rehearsing and I'm blocking and you know, someone's making a move that doesn't feel right or doesn't feel authentic to the moment. We'll have a conversation about that. But in general, it really starts with them. It starts with, because they're, look, I write my characters, they're, they're, it's, you know, it's, it's on a piece of paper. It's two dimensional. They have to bring it to life and they're going to surprise me. And they, and they, and again, when you have, 
phenomenal actors like I have, you know, they, br they bring a whole other level of sophistication and dimension that I couldn't even imagine as I'm writing it. And so th then we, you know, me and Todd and, and Stasha, my production designer, sit back and sort of watch the changes that are happening in the scene. And then that starts to inform how we're going to like either stage the, the, the set deck or, or put where, where we're going to put the camera. And it really, really revolves around them. It doesn't, I don't, I don't, I never want to wag the tail when it comes to that, because once I start telling them yeah. where they should move, yeah. you know, now here's the thing. I plan it all out. Right. Yeah. And then we get on the day and then things, then sometimes things, you know, people want to change those course, things. Right. And then, and then I want to shoot myself, but, yeah. um, but, you know, at the same time, this is, you know, this is filmmaking. It's, it's live. It's, it's kind of, it's a living, breathing thing. And you yeah. sort of have to tame it. I always say that like my favorite part of filmmaking is the prep because you get everything perfect in your head. Yeah. You get the shot list, everything's organized. And then production's my least favorite because that's when everything falls apart and right. it rains when you don't want it to rain or it's cloudy. I mean, we had like so many issues with the cloud and we're matching it with because we're lighting it on stage one way and now we got to match it yeah. on the outside. So, so everything's like falling apart, but you, that's part of filmmaking is you got to have to adapt and react to any given situation because in the truth, the emotional truth that you're always like searching for starts to come out in ways that in unexpected ways. And for me being as, precise as I'd like to be unexpected things are not really my best friend, yeah. but that, none of ours, right? None of ours. <laughs> that's life. Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah, the, the other question I was going to ask on that part was you shoot for a reason. Like everything, I, I just watched the movie twice. So I like, literally know this movie by heart now. Um, everything is framed and shot and it, it, there's a lot of purpose to it. When they're, in, when they're at the doorway, you have this side shot where, you know, it, it's, it's talking, it's the conflict, you know, these shots going up and down the bedroom, you know, it's a very kind of parasite of showing the class. But my question is like the kitchen scene when they're first, you know, when Julia's interrogating them and, uh, he goes to the, to the gun, there's so many shots there that are perfectly designed for the mood of the story, for the mood of the scene. And you know that going in. And like you said, I, I want to shoot myself. So just because I'm so curious as a filmmaker, what do you do when you have a design that is so perfect for the story, but we all run into this with the actors like, yeah, but I don't feel like doing this. I feel like walking this way. You know, how, because... I imagine inside you're like, ah, but this is exactly the best visual way to get the audience to feel something. Well, no, the, the best visual way to get the audience to feel something is through performance. Absolutely. It really is. I, I always, I always say that uh, a film, you could be, you could have terrible cinematography, terrible sound, but if you have amazing performances, there's probably still something there. You, yeah. the, the opposite is not true. You yeah. could have a beautiful looking movie. It sounds great, but if you have terrible performances, no one gives a f <laughs> and, and, and honestly, the, it, I, I really believe that it really comes from, your investment in who you're watching and how compelling they're being and how interested you in uh, you're in and what they're going to do or not do. Um, and so for that scene in the kitchen, I remember we were all kind of sitting around and 
I think it was Ethan. Um, he, he made a statement. He said, what's interesting about this scene is everyone thinks that this is their kitchen. <laughs> and, and I love that yeah. because everyone's got a secret in that scene and everyone's sort of maneuvering. And my is acting like, you know, she's grabbing the water. She doesn't even wait to, to really get a, a response to that. They're trying to make themselves at home. Whereas the, you know, Amanda and, and Clay are kind of defensive in a place that they thought was their home and there's always these machinations and and people are kind of afraid to speak up and be blunt and clay is being earnest and and then getting these glances from amanda so all of those things came from the cast and it's my job and todd's job to figure out a way to capture those in the most visceral way to get the audience involved with them and it's never really the other way around and that's the gift that is the gift that you can, you can pivot and, and still, you know, you can pivot on any kind of change, which is, which is the art. Which now is the I'm not art. saying it's easy. It's not Because <laughs> when it happens, no, I know I'm scared and <laughs> I got to take like a Xanax or whatever, but eventually I get there. You said, uh, that you love a movie's tone to be, uh, you can't classify it. Right. Yeah. Talk more about, I I love that. I I think, I mean, we've all been there where we're watching a movie and you know exactly how the movie is going to end. Maybe first, first three minutes into the movie. And, and then, you know, and then you're getting 20, 30 minutes into the movie and it's playing exactly the music that you've heard for this specific kind of movie, let's just say thriller. Um, it's playing the the sad needle drops. (laughs) It's playing, you know, and it's the moody lighting and you just, it starts to feel, it starts to go down these very cliched ways. And the the biggest problem with that, especially with thrillers is it kills all the suspense and tension because you start, the audience starts to get way ahead. And especially now when you have access, when you know that everyone has access to a ton of movies and TV shows, you know, there, there's a formula that, that you're always fighting against as a filmmaker. And for me, tone is everything, right? Tone is a way to break that spell. And if I'm dropping a, a cool in the gang needle drop in what's supposed to be a, an apocalyptic thriller, hopefully it just disarms you and tells you to to stop thinking about this in the way that you thought it was going to be. And once you get somebody in that position where they are in sort of a free fall where they're like, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know what's about to happen. That That's the most, as a filmmaker, that's the best thing you could do. Absolutely. And that's the best gift you can give an audience member because what you want is for them not to know what's going to happen next. Yet at the same time, want desperately to know what's going to happen next. Absolutely. And that, that all comes down to tone. And, and, and making it so unpredictable. And that's, it's, it's rare nowadays. It's rare to make these movies that like, you know, just examples. Like when I first saw seven in the theater, I was going to have a heart attack. I, at the ending, I was just like, what the fuck is happening? You know, or he turns himself in, you know, 45 minutes into the movie. Um, how did this movie come about? You know, how had the book come to you? The Obamas, Netflix, Julia, everything. So the book came to me, this is like early days of the pandemic. And it was, I mean, you know, I'm reading this book and it's really the theme of that book is, is about how we sort of 
can lose sight of our common humanity in the face of a crisis. And it was obviously pretty relevant at the time, but I, I will say with everything going on in the world right now, it's pretty relevant today, sadly. And it just really spoke to me. And at the time I was also contemplating, you know, writing a disaster film. And one of the things that I loved about the book and picturing it in that way was, you know, a typical disaster film. And I love, love disaster films. It was one of my favorite genres, but the priority is usually on the spectacle, right? It's usually on the set pieces and the characters are pretty secondary. And what, what I loved about the book and what the opportunity to turn it into a movie was to invert that so that really the characters become front and center and the disaster elements are more in the distance. And I thought that was, that that was just for me that just f- spoke a little bit to what's going on today i mean even with the pandemic we had all these questions and it was such a big mystery and we were in this fog and we we're coming up with theories i mean we were, you know we were wiping down amazon boxes we didn't fucking know what we were we were holding our breath every time we walked by somebody on the street i mean yeah. we were so confused and i loved exploring that uncertainty and the fear of that and um so i you know i spoke with ramon the author of the book i told him that i had roughly some of the changes that i wanted to make and um and you know namely like kind of grafting on this cyber attack because that wasn't in the book um putting it into the uh making that kind of central to the to the disaster element piece of the of the story um and he was game and then i literally sent it to julia she read it in one day she said i'm in and then once you have you know julia roberts it's pretty easy to to make a movie you <laughs> <It> know <is. laughs> and, then the, and then the obamas and then the obamas came afterwards i mean you know look uh, president obama was a uh a fan of the book he yeah. was um you know he had it on his list on his uh book on his reading list and and he and then you know to just jump back in time a little bit during the second season of mr robot as we were finishing up rough cuts we got a call from the white house saying that president Obama would like early cuts of the episodes because he's a fan of the show. That is true. That is sick. So he was a fan of mine. And so, (laughs) yeah, I was, yeah, a very surreal moment. That is incredible. What, uh, in the early days of your career, I mean, I would imagine today, I'm sure everyone has such trust in you. You know, the, the, you know, this is how it's going to be done. They, they, they trust every part of your filmmaking. In your early days, just to ask, since, again, you're so precise, you have such a vision, what did you do when people pushed back a little bit creatively? Not in a bad way, but didn't understand, didn't, you know, didn't know your work. How, how do you, how did you, again, get what you wanted not being CMS model today? I mean, honestly, it's, it's the same that I now than it was before. It's, I just, I, you know, honestly, I just insist. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how else to do it because the one thing that I do know is that when you're shooting a scene or you're, let's just say you're in a setup yeah. and you don't have it, you do not check the gate. Right. You do, you do, you do not, you right. will hate yourself if you do. And I have done that and I have checked the gate we and I know I, yeah. I know I didn't get it. And that was just a big lesson that I, you know, that I had to sort of, 
I, it, it, I know it hurt the film and, and I, you know, Fincher talks about this a lot. I know we were talking about Fincher earlier, you know, we're all, there's hundreds of people in the crew. You're all there that day to capture whatever scene or, you know, whatever moment or whatever set sequence, that's what you're there for. And if you're not going to get it, then you're not ready to go home. It's not, it's not time to go home. It's not time to move on. And I really, I think that, that, that says a lot. And, you know, yes, people can get tired and people can get overwhelmed and people need a break. And then you take a break, but what you don't do is pretend that you got something that you don't. God bless them. Right. (laughs) No, it's the worst. We all know it being in the editing room, being like, why the f didn't I say something? Right. I mean, we're all there. Um, talk about adapting the book and talk about uh, Ruth was his wife. The daughter was his wife in the book. What other, what other changes did you make? Well, the whole disaster, the, all the set pieces were not in the book. The book was really about the, the family and, um, uh, in the house. And it was, it was honestly, it was was really a chamber drama, um, or dramedy because it was really funny. Um, so, I expanded that to kind of glimpse more of the elements, but still keep true to the fact that we're very, very much locked into these characters point of view, um, that we're not literally like, you know, in the throes of an action sequence, like you would in a a typical disaster film. Um, um, and then I, you know, I changed Ruth from, from the, uh, from the wife to the daughter because I, you know, I wanted more of a panoramic uh, view of, uh, you know, sort of the, uh, across multiple generations. And, and I wanted sort of that Gen Z millennial point of view that I didn't think the book had. But the one thing I will say about adapting a book, and I, I say this in general because there's this weird fanaticism with the idea that you're supposed to be this ultra faithful to the source material. And I never understood that. If something is excellent in one, um, in one medium, why would you just want to Xerox it to another medium? That doesn't make any sense. There has to be a translation. And the thing that I love about what we did and Ramon, I think would agree with me is that the book stands alone on its own. And if you read the book, you'll have a very different experience in watching the movie. Obviously there's a lot in common and the thematics are similar, but there are two pieces, uh, you know, there, there are two pieces that kind of stand independently of one another. And I think that's the best way to adapt is to say, I got it. I got the book. It's beautiful. It's in a literary format. Now I'm going to reconceive it in the cinematic format and that's going to require some changes that are, you know, that are going to change the DNA of it. But ultimately I think that's, that's the only, otherwise it's pointless. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in making a Xerox of something else. It's, it's a super smart analogy, the Xerox. Yeah. And how was that relationship? I mean, is, did, did you, did you know him before you read the book? No, not at all. No, he was great. I mean, look, you know, as a writer, you're a writer, like, you know, we can, we can be precious about our stuff. Absolutely. And, and he wasn't. And he wasn't because I think of everything I just said. He basically said, listen, you're doing a movie. This is, has, you know, to a certain extent, that's different from my book. And so we, we had a very healthy collaboration. I would just kind of pitch him. It was more like pitching him ideas and, and I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. And he was usually game and, and, um, let me sort of explore and I would give him the script. I'd show him cuts and, um, he was just incredibly supportive. It's fantastic. So on the, on the, uh, on the first draft of your adaptation, 
were, when you sent him, were you like, oh boy? Oh my God, I was freaking the f*** out, man. <laughs> I sent it to him and then I didn't hear from him for like oh, no. two days. Okay. And I was like, oh, f- <laughs> Here we go. Oh, here we go. And then I got a text like one morning and it was all good. He loved Relief, it. Yeah. right? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I read that your music composer scored this while it was being shot. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys are all filmmakers. I think the tendency is to use temp music when you're editing. Yep. Um, and then, (laughs) right. Right. And then the composer comes in and tries not to do a sound alike, but they're kind of doing a sound alike, at least spiritually anyway. The thing with me is music is so important and it goes back to what we talked about with tone. It's, it's something that I need to like feel as I'm filming, as I'm filming the scenes. I oftentimes play music while I'm on set, depending on the scene and depending on who the actor is. Cause I obviously don't want to interrupt their process. Okay. Um, so I told Mac, let's not wait until I get into the edit bay because you know, what's going to happen. The editor is going to start using temp music cause I'm going to want to hear music. I don't want to, I, I, I generally do not. I know some directors like to do a cut dry. I don't, I, I don't work like that. Yeah. I think music is so integral to how a scene feels or how it moves or how, how the, how the pacing feels. So Mac just started composing pieces and we started having a conversation about it and I started playing it on set and I'd play it, you know, there, you know, there's a drone shot. I think this is the first piece of music that he wrote the drone shot of the car going around that loop loop going into the beach. Yeah. And I would, he gave me that piece and I just played it as we shot that. Sh- wow. And I'm like, this is perfect. Wow. And you know, it, it's that kind of thing where it, you know, that it, it, it's, Honestly, I always say that music is sort of the heart and soul because there's no way to better inject tone into someone without music. Like music is, is the way it's like an adrenaline shot. And, um, and so he just started writing more pieces as we were shooting. And then by the time we were done shooting, we basically had most of the score. That is incredible. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's Mac, man. He's great. He's, he's, he works really fast. He's creative, but he's also just so intuitive about what, what I wanted. Um, and, and we've worked together for a long time and I, I just attribute that to like how open and, uh, and, and transparent he is about what, and, and how much he can read me and read the script and kind of understand the beats and the tone that we were going for. It's, it's incredible. And that's the dream. That really is a dream. And you, re- you really have... I was texting you this. You have your family, which is so fantastic. So they, you know, talk about that a little little bit because we'll get to the editor in a second. But you know, talk about the shorthand. Talk about you talk talk about the 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 benefits of that. Well, I mean, listen. I mean, again, you guys have all been on set. It's it's you have a hundred people staring at you, waiting for you to make a decision about whatever you're about to do (laughs) next, and. When you have a shorthand with your DP, with your production designer, with your costume designer, um, it just takes minutes off of those decisions and those deliberations. And those minutes are really precious during, uh, uh, during, um, during a a shoot day. And now having said that, the, the, I'd say the bigger benefit is 
we all are so excited to work together. Yeah. It's like bringing the band back together. It's, it's like we all band. talk about like the other thing that we did without yeah. like, without you and without, you know, but yeah. then we're back together and we're actually like, you know, well, obviously we fight. It's like a family. It is like a family. Right. We, we, right. You know, we'll get into arguments, but it's always with, you know, it's always about the movie. It's always about the work. It's always about how can we push this even further? I was living with my DP and my AD. My AD is also part of the family. We've been working together since homecoming. We were staying in a house and every night we'd come back and we'd talk about the day. We'd, we'd pull up stills. Uh, I mean, so the fact that we enjoyed what we were doing to the point where even when we went home, we didn't want to turn our brains off. We just wanted to keep thinking about and talking about it. That that's the luxury you get when you have like such a tight knit group like that. I'm envious. Sometimes (laughs) I have it the exact opposite. Um, Talk about the editor now. Cause you, you never worked with Lisa before. I never worked with Lisa and she's, you know, she's brilliant. She's amazing. And, um, and, um, I generally do not like looking at scenes, uh, while I'm filming. Like I, I, I want to compartmentalize, but with her, I was able to do it. And she had, she had a way to communicate with me. Cause you know, sometimes, you know, you get a call from your editor saying, I don't think you got this. And you're like, you know, <laughs> right, you gotta, exactly. I, what are you saying? Like, I got you just not, you know, not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. But Lisa just had a way to really say, I think you should look at this again. And she would put it together and I would look at it. And, um, and then, you know, and that, that, that's obviously very important because once you're wrapped, it's a a lot harder to get those reshoots back in. So she, and she did that from honestly, even during the script phase, you know, because we were, um, because I was pre prepping so much and, um, and doing a lot of previses, she weighed in on, a lot of that and said, you know, maybe, you know, there was a moment, I think when Archie says to, to, to clay, um, he asked, like, this is post teeth falling out. He said, you know, um, uh, he says, uh, what do you, what do you, do you think Taylor's okay? Uh, his, I guess, girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that was originally written and another that was in another scene. And Lisa had the idea that really, if you, you should put it there because it really emphasizes the stakes for clay when they got out of the car to confront Danny, uh, to get this medicine to, to really see how dire the situation with Archie. And I thought that was really smart. And so again, you know, the one thing I will say, even with my core family and Lisa is that we were all very open. There was never, I was never, I'm never one to be like, uh, you know, you do not talk to me about my <laughs> script or, or the movie or I know no all. Yeah. Do not look at me. No, it was, it was very much an inviting, uh, collaboration where everyone was able to share their opinions. And, and, and Lisa was just, you know, she folded in very nicely with the rest of us. And why, just to ask you, why do you not, like seeing scenes while you're shooting. I'm, as you know, as you mentioned, very specific and I will get a heart attack if I see a scene that's cut, not in the way that I envisioned it. And then I'll go on the downward spiral of depression. Um, (laughs) uh, and that is not something I want to do while I'm shooting. (laughs) Um, 
And, and, it, and then like, if I see it and it's not right, then now I want to spend six hours in on zoom or whatever right, to edit right. and get it right. And I don't have time to do that, nor should I do that. Um, so it's one of those things where I, I it's, it's more to manage my anxiety, but at the same time, obviously, like I said with Lisa, she was able to figure out a way to get me to see what she's seeing so that so that it is important during production for me to pick up whatever shots we're missing, you know, makes total sense. And, and why her, why, why, you know, when you were probably looking at editors, was it, what, what was it her work? Was it something specific she did? It was the way she, it was, honestly, this is how I, this is how I hire everyone. When, when I, when I look at any, to fill any position and it's, whether it's a costume designer, an editor, whoever, I want to understand that they're a filmmaker first and foremost, like, cause that's the way I look at it. Even Peter Cohn, my AD, who's done like everything from La La Land and the Revenant, like he's done all, he's done big movie pirates, all this stuff. But the one thing that I knew immediately with him is that he's a filmmaker first and foremost. Um, he's not just an AD. He's, right. he's wants to make a movie and he wants to tell a story. Right. And so he's by my side telling me, I don't know about that, Sam. I don't know what this is doing. And, you know, and he, so the fact that he cares about that is what I like. And that's what I saw in Lisa is that when we spoke, it wasn't really about, well, what's your editing style? What's right. your avid? Like, do you, are you avid? No, when, <laughs> none of that. <laughs> it was, she was talking about filmmaking. Yeah. She was talking about how to put a story together yeah. and that's what I love. I love hiring filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you have such a very specific, well, let me just go back to you picturing the movie. So when you, when you begin picturing the visual design, of this movie, it, again, it's such a specific thing that we'll go into. Are you starting to picture that as you adapt the book? Are you starting to picture that when a draft is done? Like, like walk us through that. I'm picturing it as I'm writing. Okay. Um, I have music playing yep. again and I'm imagining the opening and I'm imagining the transitions and I'm imagining, I'm not imagining the scene work specifically because again, I'm letting, leaving that open to the, the cast to kind of fill that in. But I'm sort of imagining like the first draft of the visual conceit, if you will. Yeah. Um, like when Julia walks up when she first comes into the house. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. And she, and she's like taking in this home and she's got, this is their first vacation in years and she's really enjoying it. I remember feeling like, well, I want to really evoke this dizzying, you know, kind of sensation as she's exploring this amazing house, which by the way, we felt dizzying when we first found that house. (laughs) Like it was like, wow, this is you know, the, the way the, it's structured, the way that hall that's kind of open to the backyard, it was kind of weird, but beautiful. And, um, and we were sort of all in awe and I wanted, I, I remember feeling like, okay, that camera needs to spin and turn to feel, but, but I want that. I don't want just her sensation of enjoying this place, but that there's a sickening feeling to it as well. Uh, Cause I wanted to start to plant the seeds. Something's not quite right. And I, I know some of you probably watching that maybe had to look away cause it does make some people sick. I know Julia, <laughs> I know Julia got a little sick watching it, but, um, but that was sort of the point is that we were starting to plant the seeds that even in this innocuous moment where she's taking in this, this home she rented for the weekend, 
uh, something's a little off, something's not quite right. And, and that kind of carries over with the music, you know, they're going to the beach and Max got this really throbbing kind of intense music awesome. and it's a yeah. family going to the beach. <laughs> Vacation, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we were starting to kind of build that tension, even though what you're seeing is, is innocent and uh, lovely. And that, that's again, breaking the sort of formula that you would see in a typical thriller where perhaps a setting like the setup like that would lean into the happy go lucky. Right. And right. we wanted to contrast that. So, so yeah, it, it, it definitely happens in the writing and obviously continues throughout, but it, that, the inkling of that, all the seeds of all that starts when I'm just writing the first draft. And how does that translate to the editing though? As far as you're seeing it so clearly, you know, the song, you can feel how it's going to be cut. How do you work with Lisa on that when you, when you do have a vision for it? She, she knows she's, but she's there. So no, she's not there when I'm writing it, but in prep, cause you know, Lisa was on very early on, like, okay. um, weeks out, you know, I'd say like, you know, I don't know, eight or nine weeks out from shooting and she was in every meeting Fantastic. and I, I had my playlist uh, of needle drops and, Obviously, you know, I we had the previs of that shot and I played the music with the previs. <laughs> I mean, I'm a crazy person. Yeah, and no, no, so it, it just left no room for um, error. Now, that doesn't mean like, you know, look, there were previses where we put the music in and I looked at it and Lisa was like, I don't know about this. I'm like, yeah, I kind of agree. I don't. And that's that's I want to work that out now, yeah. not when we're shooting it. Um, so we, that's, that's that that's like the that was like the great thing about specifically using previs is you really can save a lot of time on set by just planning all that out. But it, it's great to have your editor there because she's, you know, in this case, Lisa was the one that had to make sure she could see it and understand it tonally because she's the one that's going to be driving this whole thing in yeah. the post, you know, no, that's a, and that's a dream to have her there eight, nine weeks. Out. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Was that the first pick here? Was that song the first choice? Oh yeah. Stairway. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I had a different song for the cool and the gang. And, and I, I believe Sean, my producer picked that song out. Um, I can't remember. Oh, the Tina Turner song, but, but the cool and the gang won out. And what about the song when they pull up to the house? That's the cool and the gang. Oh, that's song. cool. And the gang? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. What's the one with, uh, when they, when they're dancing in the album? That's too close. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got it. Uh, well, let's talk about casting. So Julia, you had this relationship with from Homecoming. Yeah. You read the book and you were like, it's her. I'm like, I mean. Right. Yeah. Talk to me about Ethan Hawke. Uh, Ethan was, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Ethan from mainly the before trilogies, but honestly, all of his work. And, um, and the trick about Clay was like, so typically in a movie like this, Clay is the hero, right? He's mm -hmm. the patriarch of the family. That's right. Um, Clay is the exact opposite. And, um, and he's constantly sort of failing his family. He's failing himself. And I needed somebody who was going to have the ability to play that in a way that wasn't going to make us hate this guy, right. but right. actually root for him because of it. Right. And I think Ethan just had that sort of I don't know what it is, unflappable charm that he has that just makes you realize that, you know, there's that great line that he ha that he uh, that says about, um, you know, I'm a useless man. I can't do anything without my Google or, or without <laughs> right. my phone or my right, GPS. Right. And I think we can all relate to that. And there was just a human 
uh, you know, there was just a very human thing that Ethan was able to bring to the character where you didn't really begrudge him for all his flaws. And it was really important to pull that off. It's the same thing with Julia. Like Amanda, you know, is a very tough character to, to access, you know, on the page, she could be unlikable. A very, yeah. But when you have Julia Roberts, you know, she can channel the humanity out of anybody. And that, that, that was the trick. Honestly, like I, it's, I would be in a lot of trouble if I didn't have Ethan or Julia playing those characters because they could really come off really flat and, and, and really, uh, and, and really abrasive. And, and they were able, it's, it's finding a way to, find the truth in those people and finding a way for you to relate to them despite disagreeing with whatever they're doing or, you know? Yeah. When did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker and how'd that come about? Oh God. I tell this story a lot. I know, I think Spielberg's going to be here tomorrow, right? Yeah. Okay. Spielberg uh, moderating Scorsese tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I don't know if you guys go tomorrow, maybe you can share the story with them. But, um, (laughs) the first movie I saw was E.T. Okay. Now, before, before I saw ET, everybody was talking about ET. I was, I was, I think I was like five. Yeah. And all my friends were obsessed with it. It, was, it came out over the summer and the school had started and they were just all talking. I had not seen it yet. And it was, I just knew it was a movie about aliens. And I was just excited to see this sci fi spectacle of aliens. And I, you know, I, I, um, I, I begged my parents, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. My parents did not want to splurge on a movie theater ticket, but I begged them. They finally, I mean, they didn't, they didn't even, they dropped me off. I was five years old. <laughs> what? That's how much they didn't want to pay for the movie <laughs> ticket. They didn't want to pay them. So I'm sitting there watching ET and I'm going to sound like an ass when I say this, but this is true. I did not love it. I was bored to, to tears. And I remember leaving the theater thinking, Oh, I can, I can do better than that. <laughs> that so, and I'm admitting that I'm a, it was, I was a little back then. Yeah. And, um, and by the way, since then I've revisited ET and <laughs> it's not I, bad. No, it's, it's pretty good. It's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> Um, but I, but, but I, that was like the first inkling, like there was something, um, there was something about, and it was being in that theater, um, and, and just being transported to another world, um, and being with involved with people, you know, as a kid, you know, how you grow up and you're like, I want to be a doctor one week and I want to be a lawyer one week. And I, you would switch these jobs. And the one thing about filmmaking is you could do that every movie. I, you could make a movie about a lawyer and then right. you're that person for that, for the, that stretch of time you're making that movie. And that was the fun thing about filmmaking is that you could just jump into these different roles as you tell these stories. And I, as a kid, I remember just grasping that. Yeah. I don't know why, but I just thought that that excited me. And so here I am, however many years later. And thank so God thank you're you, here. Spielberg. Sam <laughs> <laughs> Espinel, guys. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 